we need to understand that this was a clear direction from the Lord for Jonah. Jonah was recognized as a prophet. He had heard the word of the Lord before. He knew what it was like to discern the word of the Lord. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we see that Jonah was recognized as a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam. And the Lord says, arise and go to Nineveh. There's something we need to understand about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was probably some of the most brutal um, conquering forces that have ever been on the face of this earth. Um, some of the stories that I've heard and read about what they did to their captors, um, I don't think I'd want to repeat. Um, they were so brutal that there's stories of towns or villages committing suicide when they seen the Assyrian forces coming near rather than be captured and tortured. These guys were brutal. They were the arch nemesis of Israel at the time. So it, gives, it has to give some context to why Jonah wanted to run. The city of Nineveh was a great city. It was the capital of Assyria at that time. Uh, history tells us that it had a, a, a huge wall around it that was like 50 feet high, the foundations in the wall, 50 feet wide. They say three chariots could run abreast on it. Every 60 feet, there was a tower, and there were 1,700 acres encompassed in walls. This was a vast city. Um, uh, some archaeologists figure there could have been up to 600,000 people living there. It's huge. So he's, he's called to go out to these Assyrians, to Nineveh, this great city, because the evil has gone up before the Lord. The Lord saw what these guys were doing, they're evil. But in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, it's interesting, if we look at where Jonah lived, um, the little town I forgot to write down the name of the town, but it was just above um, Joppa where he found the ship. Nineveh was like 550 miles northeast. He went down a little bit to Joppa, got on a boat, and he was trying to head 2,500 miles due west from Nineveh. He was going the polar extreme. He was running. You know, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. He, he knew the Lord. He understood what it was like to hear from the Lord, but yet he confined God to a box he was trying to run from the presence of the Lord. I believe Jonah was confined God to the thought that God just lived in the temple. But he kind of did it foolishly because he knew the scriptures as we'll see later on. And in Psalm 139, verse 7, the psalmist says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I be from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is everywhere. He went down and found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and he went down to it to go with them to, to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You know, I think Jonah was probably grinning. He got down to Joppa and, oh man, there's a ship ready to go. Great, I'm going to jump on it. Let's run. Paid the fare. Let's go. He thought circumstances were just lining up for his disobedience to the Lord. You know, every time, what Jonah really did is he took his eyes off of God's message for him, God's command, and he let his eyes fall back onto his flesh, and his fleshly desires, his desires that these Assyrians would get nuked. He didn't want to go and preach repentance to Nineveh. He wanted to see them nuked. He would have been plenty happy with them all burning. So his eyes went from up to down, and we'll see a few times in this passage that that it talks about going down, going down. When we get on that slippery slope of looking at ourselves, we slide downward, 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 downward. We get caught up. We look at circumstances and we don't evaluate them against what we know of God and the word of God. 
We have to remember that the, the devil comes like a thief to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants, to, he wants to make circumstances look good for us when we're running from the Lord. We can't, we got to remember, God is not in a little box. He's not in the four walls of this place. He's not in the four walls of our house. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. So he got on the ship. Things are going great. Probably smooth sailing. And here the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea that the ship was threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. These guys were scared out of their wits. These guys were seafaring men. They were used to the sea. They were used to storms. This storm scared the crap out of them. There was more to it. It was a spiritual connotation to them. This wasn't just a natural you know, weather pattern shifting and we got a good storm coming up. This was a spiritual, they were afraid, it said. They were afraid. They threw their livelihood overboard. They got paid by getting cargo from A to B. They threw their livelihood overboard. They were trying to save themselves but recognizing the, 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 the depth of this storm. You know, it's interesting, when we get into trouble, this is what we do. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You know, every time I've been in trouble, what's the first thing that goes through mind? Oh, God, help me. God, help me. I believe there aren't many atheists when we are right up against peril. All of a sudden, man, mankind cries out to God, whether they know the living, risen God, or they don't know what they're crying out to, but they cry out for help. They were afraid. But here's Jonah. Jonah had gone down. Here he's continuing down the slippery slope of looking at himself, taking his eyes off the Lord. He had laid down. He was fast asleep. And the captain had to come and say to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise. Go out and call to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, give thought to us that we may not perish. You know, Jonah had fallen asleep physically, but he had really fallen asleep spiritually. When he took his eyes off the Lord and let him fall back onto his, himself and his pride, he, took his, he fell asleep spiritually. When I was looking at this, I thought, oh, man, I got to take, have you ever taken spiritual inventory of where you stand before you and the Lord? Taking a look and say, am I in the word? Am I praying? And do I have a relationship with the Lord? Have I let it go stagnant? Am I learning scripture? Or am I just letting it, Fall asleep, being sleepers. Wake up, you sleeper. Have you ever been exhorted by a non-believer to be a better believer? I tell you, it stings. I remember one coworker I was with, working with, I said something, and he turned around and said to me, you're the Christian? Oh, that hurt. It's a scary thing when we fall asleep spiritually and have to be exhorted by those who don't know the Lord to get our spiritual life in order. So exhorted by an unbeliever, the captain said, come up, call to your God. Maybe he was hoping that one, someone on the ship would have a God that was big enough for this situation. And we know that Jonah's God is our God, the creator and sustainer of the earth. 
And they said to one another, come let us cast lots so we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So the sailors, they're like, well, how are we going to figure it? They understood this was a spiritual storm and they figured there's got to be a reason for it. Say, well, what are you going to do? Let's cast lots. The Lord directed the lots. I'm not a proponent of gambling here, but I'm saying that the Lord can use whatever. And the Lord directed the lots so that it fell on Jonah. And then the sailors go, wow, what did you do? What's going on? We get the the 99 questions. Understandably, the same thing we would do. And here's Jonah's answer. I believe that Jonah starts to have a little bit of inklings of understanding and repentance in his answer. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They, all of a sudden, they realized that the storm was because of this guy who was in trouble with the guy who created this sea that they always sail on, and this huge, scary storm. They suddenly recognized that they were dealing with a powerful God, a true God, the true God, not one of their small g gods. You know, at this time, Jonah, he was a prophet. He was to be a blessing to bring calls of repentance and, and, their, and blessing out of repentance. And he had turned into a curse. Sliding down that slippery slope, he'd become a curse rather than a blessing. I had to ask myself, am I a curse to others who aren't believers or am I a blessing to them? Am I sharing a good light of Jesus or am I a bad testimony? At this point in Jonah's life, he contradicted his knowledge of God. His life did not, act, uh, did not match up to what he knew of God and understood of God. You know, these sailors had reason to be exceedingly afraid. Because here they are. These guys, you know, that part of the world, they would have known the stories of the plagues of Egypt, the Red Sea, Gideon's armies, the Battle of Jericho. Maybe they had thought and written them off to folklore, but suddenly they're standing there and they are faced with the reality of God, the creator, and seeing that, you know what? This isn't folklore. He does have control over all things and we're in the midst of it. They had reason to be afraid. You know, in, uh, in the plagues, the magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, Jonas and Jambres, they, they talked about the finger of God, that the plagues were the finger of God. This storm was the finger of God. You know, understanding that, that uh, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord and he was running from the Lord, these guys knew that they were in trouble. Then they said to, to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? It's really a, a call of what must we do to be saved or what must I do to be saved? We sang Hosanna, save me now. They, want, they, they cried out wide because the sea grew more and more. I'm going to call it a bigger tempest because I'm not good with words with lots of U's and O's. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay Not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they tossed him in the sea, and the sea calmed down. 
And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You know, it's interesting, these pagan sailors, they were kind of more righteous than Jonah, weren't they? They thought they would try hard to do something to save well themselves and one man. And Jonah was totally okay with a city of, we know for sure it was 120,000. Um, it says that in chapter 4, it says 120,000 that couldn't distinguish their left from their right. Some people believe that means 120,000 infants. At least 120,000, maybe up to 600,000 people. Jonah was ready to let them be nuked. But these sailors didn't want to let one guy die that didn't need to. They were fearful, I believe, too, that throwing God's servant into the storm to die wasn't going to bode well for them before the Lord. You know, God wasn't ready. The other thing is, is God wasn't ready for that boat to be rowed back to shore. He was not ready to let Jonah on dry land because Jonah had not humbled his heart before the Lord yet. He was still walking in his pride and looking at himself rather than at the Lord, still on that slippery slope. God had more plans for him. So finally these guys say, okay, it's either we're all going to die or one's going to have to. And they beg the Lord, you know, don't hold this against us. They throw him overboard and the sea calms down. These guys recognize that not only was this what they were thinking that the storm was God, it totally was because it came up and it went down. The seas became calm. The men feared the Lord. You know what's interesting? Is before it said the men were exceedingly afraid. Now they fear. It's a difference. Afraid is like terror. Fear is like approaching our God with fear and trembling. Our God is an awesome God. Our God is a God to be served and honored and to come to respectfully, but not to be exceedingly afraid of because he has good plans for us. Jeremiah 29, 11. Plans for hope in the future. Though the one thing about the sailors, they remind me of Thomas a little bit. They didn't believe by faith alone. They believed by sight. What does Jesus tell us? He says that blessed are those who have not seen and believe. So the men made a sacrifice and a vow. I don't know if they made a burnt offering or what they did. Maybe it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. They vowed, I believe they vowed to serve the Lord. They saw the, they saw the goodness of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord. And then we roll into chat, in verse 17. This is where people start having their hang-ups. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What this fish was, we don't know. Whether it was a big whale or a fish or a mammal, we really don't know. Um, but we do, we do know that there are whales and that swim around the seas, or whale sharks, or whatever, they're large enough to swallow a man. We also know that we believe Genesis 1-1, that God created. Did God need to create a special fish, just one, to swallow Jonah? He did it. It's interesting that this is a foreshadow of Jesus, eh? Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and later on at the end of, this, of chapter 2, we're going to see that he was belched back up on the shore. Jesus in Matthew 12 parallels the foreshadowing of his death and resurrection with Jonah going down into the belly of the whale for three days and then being puked back on the beach or resurrected at the end of three days. God provided the, the tools to work on Jonah's heart. 
Then we hit chapter 2, and it starts with this word, then. You get into chapter 2. When I first was like, oh, well, like, what's the deal here? Did Jonah like, not even pray until he was three days in? Because we just seen that he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then it goes, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. You know what I think this is? is if we, as we go through, you'll see that this is like, I think this prayer is the culmination of what the Lord was doing in those three days. I think this prayer is his repentance. He prayed from the belly of the fish. You know, this, I'm sure that Jonah made some desperate prayers. I know if I was bobbing around in those waves, I'd be praying desperately. I know when I seen a fish coming up that was that big, I'd really be praying. As I slid down the tongue and the esophagus into the belly, I'd be freaking out. Lord, save me. I'll do anything. Save me. I believe he prayed many prayers of desperations between being tossed overboard and the third day. As he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. I think he was calling out to the Lord as in that fear, calling out, calling out. He answered me from the belly of Sheol. You know what? Out of Jonah's distress, the Lord answered him. He heard those prayers of distress. God wants a praise and adoration, but he also wants... He wants our hearts when we're scared and troubled too. He wants to be the comforter. I know in my life going through tough times and going, Lord, help, he has provided his comforter, the Holy Spirit, to comfort me and sustain me. Jonah says that the Lord answered him. Out of the belly of Sheol, I think this is kind of a literal, when we, when we see the word Sheol, it references like the grave or like a holding place for soul. Sometimes like pre-Christ, um, uh, that was thought to be in the center of the earth. Um, so the belly of Sheol could be like this idea of being in the grave of the fish, the belly of the fish, this nasty place of kind of death. Can you just imagine what it'd be like in the belly of, the, of a fish? I mean, you got all this stomach acid, your skin's probably burning, it's probably rotting flesh and seaweed. And, and uh, like I'm told that, I read that... Uh, um, uh, sperm whales, they got really stinky breath. Um, like, this wasn't a pleasant experience. I actually read about a, a marine biologist, him and the guys were studying uh, sperm whales, and when they got close, every time he thought his partner had lots of gas until he realized that that was actually just the breath from the whale every time he breathed through his breath hole. Like, this was not a pleasant experience, I guarantee you that. It would have felt a lot like a grave, like a hell. The belly of Sheol, that Old Testament place of holding down in the center of the earth. But, and you heard my cries. God hears our cries where we're, when we're in those spots of literally hell on earth. The cares, the cries of desperation. We know that in Revelation it talks about that the prayers of the saints are, are held in bowls and poured out like incense before the Lord. He wants our prayers. He loves our prayers. Verse 3 says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your, your waves and your billows passed over me. I, I think he's also recognizing the sovereignty of God, that though he was running, God had a plan and a purpose, and he pulled him out of his running and tossed him into the deep. This was part of God's plan for turning Jonah around. The flood surrounded him. But I thought it was interesting that all your waves and billows passed over me. 
He's in the belly of the fish. He's underwater. It's like, maybe I'm not theologically correct on this, but to me, it's like God was putting his finger on his life of correction, but spared him from the full wrath of the raging sea in the belly of the fish. I don't know, just my take on it. We know that God loves, disciplines those whom he loves. Like a father, we discipline our children, not because we don't like them or hate them, because we love them and want to see them succeed. Your waves and your billows of your wrath passed over me. Psalm 88, 6 and 8 says, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of the dark, deep, and your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. It's, you know, the idea that God's wrath is like waves billowing on the top of the sea. I like this idea of being kept safe in the fish under, under the waves of God's wrath and not quite in death and Sheol. And then we get to verse 4. The, th- the theme starts to change. We see the hope. Then he said, I am driven away from your sight. He understands that there's a wedge between him and the Lord. But yet I shall look upon your holy temple. I believe that this was Jonah saying, recognizing that I am going to physically see the temple in Jerusalem again. That God's not done with me yet. I believe this is the tone of this prayer in chapter 2. It's, this, uh, we, we roll, we carry on, he rolls in and he says, the water's closed in to take my life. The deep surrounded me. He was drowning. He was suffocating. The weeds wrapped around my head. Can you imagine we wrapped around the idea you can't, even if you had air that you couldn't breathe, suffocating. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought me up from the pit. We see in Psalm chapter 9, 13, and Job 17, 16, and Job 38, 17, that the bars are a reference to Sheol. I believe that Jonah was on the verge of death. He barely, barely made the, he barely survived this. He was at the edge of But the Lord brought him up from the pit. He resurrected him. And we roll into verse 7 till the end. And this is what I really like in this piece of passage we're looking at today. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Wow. There's, I see five keys in those verses. The first one in Jonah's predicament is in all this trouble and strife, he remembered the Lord. You know, this was like a deathbed or maybe a death float or bloat prayer. He was on the edge of being fish food or fish excrement, whatever. And as my life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. Remembrance. You know, the Lord heard his prayer. We have a perfect high priest. In the old days, there was a high priest. He had to go and do sacrifices over and over and over again. But we serve a risen, reigning high priest in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, it tells us that he serves on our behalf He sits down at the right hand of God the Father. He does not have to repeat the sacrifices because his sacrifice of life was enough. It's complete. It's finished. He serves as an intercessory between us and God. It's like we pray and he leans over and says, hey, Dad, this and this. 
Hey, Dad, listen to this. These are mine. These are mine. It's done. He's atoned. Uh, I'm doing an Old Testament survey class right now, and uh, we're talking about the word atonement. And in the old Hebrew, um, in the Old Testament, atonement is this idea of covering over. That our sins are covered over. Uh, you know, if we were cleaning our house, it would say, you, you'd think that we, we put the, the, the dust under the, under the rug so it can't be seen. The idea of atonement in the New Testament is that it's cast away. It's gone. Gone into God's sea of forgetfulness. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus has atoned once for all. It's done. And we have that access to God, our creator, through Jesus Christ. What a privilege. Secondly, I believe Jonah came to a point of confession. It says, those who repay who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I believe Jonah had idols in his life in regards to this situation. I think he wanted the Assyrians to rot and burn. I think it was an idol. He had hatred for them. He had no compassion for them. He he had extreme patriotism, which was born out of that that hate for the Assyrians. The reality is, is that he let pride well up in his life. He put his ways above God's ways. He didn't understand this concept of going out to the Gentiles. He didn't understand that God was, or he didn't want to understand maybe that God was so merciful. Isaiah 55, 9 tells us, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, says the Lord. Idolatry, I think it was the real sin of Jonah. The idolatry caused him to not follow God's will for his life. That was clear on his life. You might remember from Revelation, as Matt was teaching through, he talked about idolatry a bit, and idolatry in Scripture is always referred to in the terms of prostitution or whoredom, that the people prostituted themselves with other gods and idols. It's the idea of immorality, huge wedge between ourselves and God. So we see Jonah remembered the Lord and I believe he confessed that those, those idols were forsaking his, his steadfast love. He was forsaking the mercy of God by putting, allowing idols to stand up before him. Thirdly, Jonah offers thanksgiving before the Lord. You know, thanksgiving is so key to repentance. It comes from a humble heart. Psalm 50, 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Thanksgiving is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that brings glory to God. The Lord really wants our hearts. He doesn't want our stuff. The Word says He wants a humble and contrite heart. A heart that's soft to Him. I love uh, what it says in Psalm 116. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Wow. Thanksgiving. Fourthly, Thanksgiving leads us to repentance and recommitment. When we take our eyes from the mire and the muck of ourselves and our flesh, and they come back up to the Lord in thankfulness, then we can repent and recommit to the Lord he said, I will sacrifice to you and I will, what I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah promises to finish 
what he vowed to the Lord. God takes our vows very seriously. In Numbers 30, chapter 2, it says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do all according to what proceeds out of his mouth. God's serious about our vows. Fifthly, Jonah acknowledges where salvation is found. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I'm so thankful that we live post-Christ, that we're not under the Old Testament law. I've been doing this Old Testament survey, and there's been lots of law. And I understand why it never fully worked, because it would have been impossible to keep. It was based on man's faithfulness to God, Our salvation is based on God's faithfulness to us. What a powerful, wonderful thing. Jonah acknowledged that true salvation comes from the Lord. It didn't come by following all the rites of 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 the temple. That was a substitution because man didn't submit to the Lord fully. You know, we live in such a wonderful time that Christ has come. He's died for us. He's risen to new life. We, we, know, we know the gospel message well that we're all sinners, each and every one of us, and that God can't have sin in us around him. And John 1 verse 12, it says, But to all who receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not who were born, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but, or the will of man, but of God. And he saved us not because there's anything good in us or me. Believe me, I'm a mess. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy and his grace. Wow, we serve a great, risen, reigning Lord. A Jesus who sits and intercedes on our behalf, who serves as a high priest in the line and order of Mechizeldeck. We won't get into that. You know, when he did these five things, he remembered he remembered, he confessed, he gave thanksgiving, he recommitted and acknowledged where his hope came from. What did the Lord do? The Lord gave that fish a whole bunch of indigestion. And up on the beach, out came, out came Jonah on the dry land. He humbled his heart before the Lord. The Lord took those three days of desperate cries and softened his heart so he was ready to walk on dry land again. I, l- I look at ch- chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah and I say, so what do I take away from this? You know, Matt always asks me if I'm studying or working on something. He says, so if you had to sum up this passage you're, you're, you're going over in one sentence, what would it be? I had to think about it a little bit with this one. Because I wasn't sure where to hang my hat exactly. But in one sentence, turn, this is a long run on sentence, but turning our eyes down to our flesh will bring us down the slippery slope all the way to the gates of the grave. When we turn our eyes back on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we correct the order. We approach our God in remembrance, thanksgiving, confession, repentance, recommitment, and acknowledge that our salvation is rooted in the Lord. He will lift us up from the grave into new life. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. You know, in all this, we see that when God's put his will and his call on your life, 
it's there. He's going he's gonna to wrestle us or, or work with us, I should say, uh, uh, to get us to fulfill his purposes. In Romans eleven twenty nine, it says that the will and call of God are irrevocable. If we have a clear understanding of God's will for our life, it's irrevocable. We know that from God's word, we're all called to be living testimonies to God, living sacrifices. Let's be careful of our circumstances. I know sometimes I've put my feet ahead because the door was swung open easy. And I didn't test that door against Scripture. And maybe I didn't pray about it much. Maybe I didn't seek counsel. Let's weigh our circumstances before the Lord. Let's be careful of sleeping spiritually. It's easy to do. I tell you, it kind of kicked me in the butt when I thought about taking spiritual inventory again. Because I haven't sat down and actually really thought about it for a while. I thought about it and I went, oh, there's some areas in my life that I've maybe let off the throttle a little bit on. Maybe I'm starting to slide into neutral. We have to remember that a walk with the Lord, we're either going forward or we're going back. There is no neutral ground. It's like, it's like ducks in a river. It may look like they're cruising along, but they're paddling to beat the band heading up river. And as soon as they stop paddling a little bit, they're going backwards. Sliding back into the old self, back into the flesh. Let's beware of idolatry in our lives. It's so easy. You know, um, anything that drives a wedge between us and the Lord. So easy to slide into pride. I know for me, man, pride, slander, so easy. I have to ask the Lord to forgive me of that. And when we stumble, let's quickly remember, confess, give thanks, do something about it before our Lord, repent, and acknowledge where our salvation is found. Amen.